Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. When the coronavirus pandemic first started to grow in the United States, it primarily affected large urban areas on the coasts, and particularly places that are more heavily African-American and more likely to have voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. My guest today, Senior Fellow William Fry from the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, has been tracking COVID-19 spread from these areas to other parts of the country. His demographic analysis shows how the disease has spread from blue to red America and now into counties that are less urban, are whiter, and more strongly supported President Trump. On this episode, Fry talks about his analysis and what it means for our understanding of the spread of COVID-19 nationwide. Also on the episode, senior fellow David Wessel asks what shape the economic recovery could take in the months and years to come. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, the current and our events podcast. First up, here's David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. This is David Wessel, and this is my economic update. It's official. The recession began in February, according to the arbiters of such things at the National Bureau of Economic Research. It will be a deep recession. The April-May-June quarter will be one of the worst in U.S. economic history. It might be a short one, though. The recession will be over officially when the economy stops contracting and starts growing again. The best guess of most forecasters is that will occur sometime this summer. That doesn't mean the economy will be healthy or that unemployment's going back to below 4%, only that things will be getting better rather than worse. Analysts have developed an alphabet shorthand of sorts to describe the possible scenarios for the next couple of years in the economy. Remember, the economy was chugging along nicely until the pandemic hit. Then it took an abrupt downturn. The optimistic scenario is that it'll be shaped like a V. The sharp down will be followed by a sharp up as people go back to restaurants, stores reopen, offices and factories resume operation, and soon we'll be back on the path we were on before the pandemic. That doesn't seem very likely to me, but the recent jobs report in May was better than many anticipated and has encouraged the optimists, including those who advised President Trump. But that's not the only possible scenario. An alternative resembles the Nike swoosh. We get a pleasant uptick, a burst of euphoria as businesses open up, but it's a long, slow climb out of the ditch. Restaurants are only half full for months or years. Movie theaters are slow to reopen, and even when they reopen, a lot of people don't come. People are reluctant to get on airplanes. The National Association for Business Economics said the other day that nearly all the forecasters it surveyed say the economy won't be producing the same level of goods and services as it did before COVID until the second half of 2021 at the earliest. So that's the Nike swoosh. Things get better for a while. We gradually return to the path we were on, but it takes a long time. But that's not the most unpleasant scenario. A less pleasant possibility is the dreaded W. That's one where we reopen too quickly, people stop wearing masks, they don't pay attention to social distancing norms, and we get an uptick in COVID cases this fall, and we have to shut down the economy again. And that's not the worst case. The worst case looks like an L. The economy does grow, but we never get back on the path we were on before the pandemic. Some laid-off workers never find jobs. Lots of businesses go bankrupt. 
The stores and restaurants and malls that are empty stay empty for a long time. New businesses don't fill them up very soon. Businesses shelve investment plans for a few years, and they do less R&D, so we have fewer innovations. It sounds very bleak, but that's what the economy looked like for several years after the 2008-9 recession. A long, slow climb, but we never quite got back to the path we were on before the crisis hit. So what will determine what shape recovery we get? Well, three things, basically. One, the virus and the speed with which we find treatments or vaccine. Two, how people behave, how reluctant they are to go back to stores, how quickly businesses are willing to reopen, how cautious we all are. And three, whether the Federal Reserve, the Congress, and the White House continue to pump money into the economy until employment is back to where it was before the pandemic hit. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. And now, here's my interview with Bill Fry. Bill, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Oh, it's good to be with you, Fred. Can you first describe the work that you've been doing in tracking COVID-19's spread, kind of a high-level view of the work you've been doing? Sure. Along about the end of March, when we knew that this COVID-19 virus was hitting us and everybody was aware of it, many people were at home already, I saw in the newspaper and all the media was telling us that it was hitting very strongly in some parts of the country, especially in the East Coast, especially in very big areas like New York. And I decided, well, it might be a good idea since I knew that the virus was going to spread across the country. And I'm a demographer. I look at demographics. I'm not a public health person or anything like that. But I'd like to understand a little better as it spread what kinds of people were involved, in other words, from a demographic perspective, from a rural-urban perspective, and for different regions of the country, because that would give me a better sense, and I think maybe give other people a better sense of, it's not just New York City that's being hit, but some of the other attributes, and also the political attributes to this as well, because a lot of what I do is political demography, and at some point during all of this, it became a little bit of a political issue about how strongly we needed to be concerned about it, depending on what part of the country you lived in. And I thought it would be useful to see what the voting patterns were of people who were now encountering the virus for the first time and how that would spread across the country as well. I'll let listeners know and perhaps remind them throughout that your analyses of these factors can be found on the Brookings website in a series of blogs lots of great charts and tables and maps. So I encourage people to go look at those. But when you started this analysis and putting this analysis on the Brookings website, what were you finding then in terms of those issues that you brought up, the urban-rural divide, regions, and politics? Right at the beginning, as I said, I started reading in the newspaper that was largely in New York City and Seattle and a couple places around the country. At the very end of March, That, in fact, with what the data show, a very high percentage, over 80% of the people living in what I call high COVID prevalence counties were in urban cores, highly dense urban centers, New York being a big part of it, Detroit, Seattle, New Orleans, and a few other places, Boston, Philadelphia to some degree. And that was the big part of it, a big part in the northeastern part of the United States, about 80 percent of the population in these high COVID counties were in the northeastern part of the country. So this is what I expected to start out with. 
as we moved, say, three weeks into my analysis, this is from the end of March to essentially the first three weeks of April, things moved out a little more and especially moved out into the southern states and into the midwestern states. The large number of new high COVID counties in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and in the Midwest a lot of places around bigger metropolitan areas there like Chicago or Indianapolis, Milwaukee, St. Louis, but also spreading out to maybe smaller places. And in the South too, it was moving into places like Baltimore and Washington, Miami, Atlanta, and all of that. So going from the Northeast into the middle of the country, I guess you could say. And then out in the West, there was a little bit of high COVID activity in addition to Seattle, coastal California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Riverside were big cases too. But this was the beginning of the spread. And uh, as we saw in the first week, these high COVID counties, and I should stop here and say what I'm talking about when I talk about high COVID counties. These are not the places that are the biggest hotspots, but they have reached a threshold of what I determined should be 100 cases per 100,000 people. So any county that had at least 100 cases per 100,000 people, it's kind of a per capita measure. I wouldn't say it's a low threshold because I call it a high COVID prevalence, but it's not as high as a lot of other places. But give me a sense of where things were spreading. And as I say, at the end of March, it was only a small part of the country. Only 8% of the population at the end of March lived in these high COVID counties. But after three weeks into April, 48% of the U.S. population lived in these high COVID counties, as I said, were spreading out to the Midwest and the South and other parts of the West. I don't know if you want me to get into the political part of this <laughs> yet, because well, I looked also. Yeah, uh, let's go that direction. I just want to interject real quick. It does seem to me that what we've seen in the media reports of a much higher incidence of getting the disease and even dying from it amongst people of color, especially African-Americans. And it strikes me that at least initially, those high prevalence counties and the urban cores in the Northeast are where we would expect to see higher percentages of people of color and, to the political question, higher percentages of people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So can you talk about those two dimensions and how that's changed over time? Sure. At the end of March, March 29th, actually, is when I looked at it. I did it from Sunday to Sunday, so on a weekly basis as I started looking for this. Essentially, only 48% of the people living in these high COVID counties were white, according to the way they identify themselves on the census. About 18% African-American, about 21% Hispanic, 9% Asians and other races. And as you might expect, in these high COVID counties, and again, only 8% of the population living there, was a pretty strong vote for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. Her voting margin was 62 to 34. It's about a 28-point margin over Donald Trump at the end of March. So moving three weeks in to April and just looking at the people who came into those high COVID counties in those next three weeks, there we see the population is a little less diverse, 56% white, only 16% African-American living in these high COVID counties. And Hillary Clinton won those by 54 to 40, not the 62 to 34 margin she had at the end of March for those counties. So they're a little bit less dominantly Democrat. And as I said earlier, it takes in some of the major metropolitan areas in the Midwest, like Chicago and St. Louis and part of Detroit and so forth, and, and metropolitan areas in the South that voted for Clinton. But still, 
not quite as dominantly Democratic as was the case at the end of March, much whiter, and also moving out to smaller metropolitan areas. Going hand in hand here is the population in these high COVID counties disperses to smaller areas. Those are the places that tended to vote Republican in the 2016 election, and that's kind of what we saw a little bit of in the first three weeks of April. Also, in one of your analyses in late April, I think it was, you mapped COVID-19's prevalence against income data. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I looked at sort of a broad income distribution of high COVID counties in different points in time. And at the very beginning, it was kind of an income inequality picture. I mean, if you think of places like New York and other big cities, fully uh, 35% of the households in these high COVID counties made over $100,000 a year. The middle income categories from 50 to 100,000 was about 26%, from 20 to 50,000, about 22%, and less than 20,000, about 15%. But it was very heavily skewed toward richer folks. As we move into the next category, the next three weeks of April, you know, that comes down a little bit. Only 30% of those households made $100,000 or more in the crunch of the counties we looked at the first three weeks of April, and a bigger percentage in those middle-income categories. So it's getting into more middle-income groupings. We're moving into somewhat whiter areas. I also looked at the foreign-born population. They were less foreign-born toward where we're getting into the middle part of April than at the end of March and, as we say, more Republican. So a little bit more like the rest of America than in these major metro areas. And so, Bill, as we're talking now, it's the second week of June. So can you bring us up to date on what you found in terms of the demographic picture through the end of May? Yes, and I think here's where the most consequential spread of the COVID virus is apparent, especially when you look at the demographics and the political attributes of people who are being affected over time. And as I said, as we got to the middle of April, we got to about 48% of the population in these high COVID counties. As we get to the end of May, we have about 86% of the U.S. population in these high COVID counties. And the number of counties increases dramatically. 714 counties were in this picture by April the 19th. When we get to the end of May, it's 1,859 counties <laughs> that are in that picture. And a lot of them are smaller counties because as we've spread out to different parts of the country, many more rural areas are into this picture. And what we see is many more rural counties in the south and in the Midwest. Of these 1,859 new counties, the vast majority of them are smaller metropolitan areas, what we call non-metropolitan areas, and sort of exurbs outside of bigger metropolitan areas. And a good number of these smaller counties are in the Midwest and as well as the South. In the South, we see bigger numbers in Texas, in Virginia, in Georgia, in North Carolina, Of course, there were some in Georgia in the earlier part, but there's even more moving into those places, as well as Florida and Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, into the interior part of the South. Again, smaller metropolitan areas, not just big metropolitan areas. In the Midwest, spreading out to Iowa and Indiana, bigger parts of Illinois, Minnesota, Nebraska, Ohio. And yes, sure, there were more metropolitan areas as well being covered, like Austin and Dallas and Orlando and Tampa in the South, or Minneapolis or Kansas City in the Midwest. But this is much of a broader spread, I would say. And 
also into the West. Again, the West tended to be more metropolitan, more urban than was the case in the Midwest and in the South. But we did see more moving into the inner part of California, the Inland Empire of California, into the smaller populations there. And again, as we moved into these smaller areas in the middle of the country, the population became somewhat less diverse. We're about 62% white compared to where 48% white at the end of March for these new COVID counties, these new high COVID counties, only 10% black, 19% Latino, and also, again, more middle income than was the case before. Again, fewer households in the high income category. So what we're talking about here is just a huge spreading out to what's called the rest of the country. But the most interesting part of this is the political aspect of it, because we said in the first three weeks of April, we got to be a little less democratic in terms of how people voted in the 2016 election. But for the six weeks between April 20th and the end of May, there was actually a Trump dominance of the voting patterns. In other words, the people in all of those counties, Trump won by a margin of 50 to 44 for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And on top of that, when you look at the number of counties that were involved in all of this, It's really startling. Of the 1,145 counties that we've seen added to the list of counties in these six weeks between the middle of April and the end of May, 993 of them voted for Trump and 115 of them voted for Clinton. And again, a lot of these are very small counties. Many of these counties are in the Midwest states of Iowa and Indiana and Ohio and the southern states of Texas and Georgia. And also in a lot of the kind of swing states where you would see this might make a difference, depending on how people living in these counties might think of how President Trump is handling the COVID phenomenon in Michigan and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina and Florida, swing states like that. There were many more rural, small metropolitan counties that are affected by the COVID-19 in the six week period between the middle of April and the end of May. One thing that's so fascinating about that timetable, and I'm sure this is a question on the minds of a lot of listeners, is that this wave of anti-lockdown protests started in Michigan on April 15th, so just before that period that you're talking about, and they continued for a week or so. Is it possible to connect any of the increases in COVID-19 to any of that activity? That's a good question, and I don't want to play like I'm a public health expert (laughs) and to be able to say, well because people were protesting and they were a little more cavalier about going out. Maybe that helped to spread the virus. I can't really say that, but I do say that having more of this information get out there, including my studies, which we put out almost on a weekly basis coming up to now, I want people to recognize the spread of all of this. And my guess is as as people get to understand this, especially in rural areas where, of course, many times the hospitals are not nearby People have to go a long distance to get treatment and so forth. I think it's important to understand that this is not a political thing. And I'm sort of happy now that it's become a little less political. We've had other politics recently. But the idea that only urban people, only uh, racial minorities are going to get this. And if you're living out in a rural area somewhere, you don't have to be concerned about it. And if your governor tells you you've got to sort of hunker down and not get out there, that it's something to be concerned about as a political issue. I think that's maybe changed a little bit as people understand how this co-virus has spread. So would that be the same answer to the phenomenon we've seen over the past two weeks, which are 
massive nationwide, even global demonstrations to protest police violence in the wake of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. These public demonstrations and police response have brought far more people to the streets than those anti-lockdown protests that were in April. Yeah, I know here I think the answer is a delicate one because I believe even a number of public health experts, physicians and such around the country have signed a petition saying, although there may be some risk in going out there, there's also the risk if we don't stand up to this issue, the racial divide in terms of access to health care and obviously the criminal justice system, which is a trigger for all of this, that there's also risks to our population, and we have to weigh all of that. Again, I'm not the public health expert. I do see more people wearing masks that are involved in these protests, and I do see that there is some social distancing, not a whole lot of social distancing. But I think we'll only know the answer to that a few weeks from now because it takes the virus a little time to incubate and to spread. I'm hopeful (laughs) that the caution people have taken in wearing masks and so forth will not make it spread, but we'll only know that in a few weeks. Looking ahead, Bill, can you think about, in general terms, why it's important to keep tracking COVID-19 spread throughout these demographic lenses? And I assume that you will continue to produce these analyses in the coming weeks. Yeah, and I do think it's important because lots of times when you look at the newspaper, they just show you a map and shows you the number of cases at a place at a certain point in time. And it's true, even if you look at that map today, and even though the number of cases that have gone down on a daily basis in places like New York or Seattle or those initial hotspots. You look at them on the map and you say, oh, it's still high there. And it is still high there. But what you don't get when you just look at that one point in time piece of it is how it has spread over time, even if it's not as high or even nearly as high as it is in those coastal places. It's moving in those directions. And it really makes sense to actually look at it on a week by week basis to understand where it's starting hitting that lower threshold, because that's a key that it might move up in those places and then spread out from those places as well. And not only to look at the period changes across the country, but the demographics that are associated with those places. I highlighted the politics of this because it was kind of a hot item maybe several weeks ago when it became a politicized issue that some politicians were saying, oh, we don't have to worry about the COVID virus because it's only in urban areas. And I tried to show, well, no, it's moving to these other areas. But you also want to look at the income and the race-ethnic makeup of these areas and those sorts of things, because it gives people a better sense of who's being affected and who's likely to be affected. And it's a slow-moving kind of operation. Again, I'm not a public health person. You need to have that person look at these numbers as well to tell you how fast the virus is going to change in an area once it hits. But I think it's important from a demographics perspective to understand the general kinds of folks who are being affected by this in different parts of the country. And I've learned a lot from looking at this myself. I've gotten letters and notes from people saying they appreciate what I've done as well to be able to paint the picture in this particular way. Well, it's really amazing analysis as always from you, Bill. And I just want to point out to listeners that it's all on our website, brookings.edu, either look for your bio or it's on the Avenue blog. And I also want to point out to listeners something that you just published on the Avenue blog, which is on a topic we were just talking about, but it's about how the racial justice protests are a pivotal moment for millennials and Generation Z. We could probably have a whole different discussion on that, but I just want people to know that that's another issue that you've been looking at, all kinds of fascinating 
demographic questions that you're analyzing. So I much appreciate, Bill, your time and your expertise today. Oh, well, thank you, Fred. Always good to have a discussion with you about these things. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reberedo. Bill Finan and Robert Wicks of the Brookings Institution Press do the book interviews. Thanks also to my colleagues Adriana Pita, Marie Wilkin, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcast. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.